Welcome to On The Square. I am really, really excited for this episode. I'm actually kind of feeling in a diasporic mood. Um, this film on Netflix just came out called The Harder They Fall. And um, one of the things I noticed when I was looking at the film, both the actors in it and even the soundtrack, right, is like lots of folks from Africa in this diaspora. So I'm feeling in a real diasporic mood. And, you know, one of the things that we do at Sapelo Square is really interested in this intersection of Black and Muslim. And because we are based in the U.S., that's kind of where our focus has been. But that's not the full story, right? Even that's not the full story for Black Muslims in the United States. So today, I'm excited to have a conversation that we're calling Being Black and Muslim in the World. And I'm joined by three guests, Jillary Masa Machado, who's a community activist based in Canada, Tahir Fuzili Sitoto, who's a lecturer based in South Africa, and Ismael Lee Sal, who's a youth and community consultant based in the UK. So yeah, so we have this. So, so this is you know, I'm trying to be global here. Yeah, <laughs> so, you really are. Right? Yeah, Marshall, coordinating Marshall. time zones. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, let, let me tell y'all how that was like trying to get everybody, everybody at the same time. But thankfully, we were able to do that. So I'm really excited to just dig into this conversation. So my first question, and I'm going to actually, I'm I'm going to ask Ismail this question. My first question is just to start us off, really. What does being Black and Muslim mean to you? Alhamdulillah. Black and Muslim is being beautiful. And before I proceed, the brother that directed that film that you're talking about, he used to live across the road from me. No way. All right. Yeah, him and Seal, because he's the younger brother of Seal. But I was better, I was bigger friends with his younger brother. So they've got another younger brother. And that was, he was, we used to hang around together. Oh, okay. It's nice to see a guy that you grew up with doing well. Mm-hmm. So being black and Muslim is beautiful. It's someone who is reconnected to their heritage spiritually, physically, and metaphysically. And I would say being black and Muslim, and when I'm saying being black and Muslim, I'm not talking about being a token or being a pseudo-Asian or Arab slave, okay? It's, it's liberating. Is when you're um, aware of your culture, your heritage, and your spirituality all in one. It's a, a wonderful feeling. Thank you for that, Jillary. You know, it's a it's a really complicated question for me. I think, as you know, Suad, my family is originally from Panama, and the question around our blackness. Although, you know, when you look at me, you you know that I have I'm black and I have African descendancy. Is is not one that we talked a lot about. While I was growing up, it was a we we are actually, I think my family intentionally distanced themselves from blackness, and we'll talk a little bit about what that looks like in Canada, as well, uh, or in Muslim communities as well. But I think I, um, in my adulthood, I found it as an opportunity really to reclaim what it means to be Muslim um, and how you know our connection to justice, our connection to land, our connection to. Um, our ancestors, all of that, I think, complicates or adds to our Muslimness um, in the ways that we have often been portrayed or, or thought about. And so I think for me, it's really it has really been an opportunity to explore a dual identity um, and not see it as necessarily separate from my Muslimness, but as intertwined and interchangeable almost. Mm, cool. Tahir, Fuzile? Well, uh, as... Uh Jittery has said, it's quite a complex question. Mm -hmm. And perhaps to me, being 
black, I would modify that by inserting African, black African and Muslim, mm-hmm. is to use uh, Ali Mazroye's uh, description uh, to be this dialectic of otherness, yeah. uh, to be doubly othered, mm-hmm. doubly othered, othered by fellow blacks and Africans, othered also by core religionists, your Muslim family. Um, and so um, you sort of occupy a space where you have to constantly negotiate uh, a sense of who you are. And for me, that experience alone is very, it's an enriching, enriching experience. It enriches Muslimness. It also enriches Africanity or Blackness. Mm-hmm. It adds a added uh, layer, uh, complexity to being Black and African in the world. Mm. That's great because that's my, another question I had. I was like, is Black even the right term here, right? So like in terms of people who are sort of African descended or from Africa, like is that what people call themselves? So the Muslims, mm-hmm. so in your context, right, in South Africa, mm-hmm. do people call themselves Black or do they call themselves African or do they call themselves by their like Tribal, yeah, like what, 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 how do people refer to themselves? Blackness is highly contested in South Africa and it also exposes your ideological location. Hmm. Um, if, for example, you are an adherent um, of the black consciousness philosophy, then blackness is unproblematic. Blackness becomes an all inclusive term that also encapsulates being African within blackness. However, in terms of South Africa's racial politics and racial identities, especially if one considers the uh, racial hierarchies in South Africa, um, if you were African in the old order, uh, during the apartheid system, you were in the lowest levels of the hierarchy, Whereas being colored, <laughs> so hard, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and being Indian, under black consciousness, you could say, I'm black. Mm-hmm. However, in terms of apartheid classifications, you were a degree better mm. than Africans. And so black consciousness enabled those that were, okay, other shades of blackness. Okay, I got you. <laughs> who were treated uh, slightly better than Africans, and so it was. It had nothing to do, by the way, about pigmentation. You you could be lighter and be African. You could be darker and be colored or Indian mm. and be classified better than the African. Right. So so there's that contestation. Now, fast forward to the current uh, post-apartheid moment. Those who prided themselves in coloredness, for example, or Indianness, are now proud to be black (laughs) because blackness is now a privileged, uh, is in a privileged uh, position. And so there are those contestations. There are those contestations. 
And to circumvent that, um, some of us tend to use the double expression black and African. Ah, Black African. African. <laughs> With a slash. Black African. Right. right. And smile. In, in the UK, are Black people, what, what are people saying? Are we Black, Afro-Caribbean? What, what, what are we? From my experience, you, you get the debate. So you have some people who say that we're Black Muslims. Then you have some people who say, no, we're African Muslims. And then you have some people who are of the Caribbean diaspora saying, no, we're African Caribbean Muslims. And then the ones of African heritage say we're African Muslims. So you get a, a mixture of all, all three or four, all I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So black Muslims, African Muslims, Afro African Caribbean Muslims. Yeah, that's I would say that's oh, it. How simple say that? And then and then in Canada, Jillary, you're saying it's complicated. I mean, I think it is complicated in the, in very similar ways. I think there is a movement happening right now that has given license for folks to call themselves Black. And that signals something about their politic or their understanding about how they move in in society. There is an existing debate, I think, here in Canada because we have Black coming from everywhere. From uh, We have a, a Indigenous Black community um, that came here through the Loyalist movement from the States that were, you know, former, former or freed slaves. Um, we have folks who came from the continent in more recent years, so the Somali community, the Sudanese community, the Ethiopian community, that for a very long time would not identify as Black because identifying as Black meant something about your class. It meant something about the type of activity that you were engaged in, uh, something about your criminality. And so they they were very intentional about distancing themselves um, from, from Blackness. And then you have folks who are Black and Muslim, who I think claim Black and Muslim really strongly, who came here from the Caribbean or from the States and converted to Islam during the civil rights movement because of the influence of Malcolm X and um, Elijah Muhammad and, you know, all of these great thinkers who will often criticize the ways in which communities that have come here recently as immigrant communities at one time distanced themselves from Blackness and now, as the conversation has shifted, are you know, connecting themselves with that, with the identity of Blackness. So I think it is quite complicated. And similarly to other places, there is a debate about it. It signals a politic. And I think that it's it's constantly shifting. And some of us are kind of caught in, in the middle of it, right? You know, I, I am, you know, the descendant of slaves in North South America, but we don't, I don't have the same relationship with the, the story that most, that many that, that come from Canada or the United States, whose families have been here for generations because of slavery, that story doesn't necessarily resonate or sit with me. I come from a family that for a very long time rejected their Black or African identity, that didn't talk about it, admitted that they were darker skin, but would be, you know, first to point to their French ancestry and their Indigenous ancestry, and the African ancestry was always the last thing. So I think I sit kind of in the middle of it and complicating, you know, what does it mean to have a history that's only acknowledged or an identity that's only or often acknowledged only in the context of trauma, um, as opposed to thinking about how is our African ancestry um, and our, its connection to our Muslimness something that is, is about spirituality, it's about practice, it's about our relationship, as, as I said before, to ancestry, to the land that looks distinct because of our cultural identities, that even when we don't, when it hasn't been passed down, passed down to us, we kind of have a connection to. But there's just a little bit of an obsession in my mind about our connection to trauma through slavery or racism or systemic oppression. 
Yeah. It's not, I wanted to ask you, I thank you. Jillary sort of gave us a little bit of a kind of a demographic kind of layout, right? Of kind of who are the Black Muslims, right, in Canada. And so similarly, Ismail, I'm interested in that too for, for the UK, like sort of who, who, what is this community or like kind of what, can you tell us a little bit of its history? Okay. So I would say, first of all, I agree with the sister who mentioned the Eritrean, Ethiopian, Sudanese community, because what I noticed that a lot of the older generation wouldn't acknowledge their blackness. But when you speak to most of the younger generation, I would say 30 and under, because of the experiences that they've gone through, which is very similar to sub-Saharan African and Caribbean people descent, they consider themselves black. I remember I was, I was doing a youth project, even though I knew this already from my experiences in the mosques and so forth, but what made it seem real to me, I was doing a youth work project and I was working with some Eritreans and they were asking me when they're filling the form, they don't know what to put down, if they're black African or not. And they said they've asked their parents and their parents told them, you choose. So when they told, they were asking me, what should I put down? I said, you're black African. You're from, where's, where's Eritrea? So that made me see that reality, which is very prevalent. So yes, so but I would say over the past 10, 15 years, you get more Eritrean, Sudanese um, and Somalis stating they're black and proving their blackness. And I would say that, like I'm sure the same is in Canada, the black communities are not monolithic. So you have a lot of the, Af- the Afro-Caribbean communities, they hang out in a particular circle. The Senegalese hang out in a particular circle. The Nigerians hang out in a circle. That's the elders, of course, the ones who are 40 or maybe 50 plus. But then what's happened now, the younger generation, which would be under 30, they're more mixed. So you're seeing more black Muslim circles, more black Muslims gatherings in the UK, I would say, and more black Muslims taking ownership and not relying with begging bowls to other communities which is interesting and very refreshing to see. Um, Tahir, in South Africa, the Black African Muslims, like, I'm interested in sort of what is the story, or is it similar or different to some of the things that we've been hearing so far? I think there are some similarities as well as uh, some differences. But again, it depends what historical periods one is looking at. Let me use the apartheid period as a marker as a historical marker, before South Africa entered its open democratic phase, when one was called Black Muslim, it instantly referred to African, those from African communities who had come to Islam, say, for example, through conversion. However, when South Africa became a quote-unquote free democracy, its borders began to open up and then there was um, what Kole uh, Omotosho has referred to a season of migration to the South. Many Africans from predominantly historically Muslim contexts, such as the Senegalese that you are referring to, and others such as from Nigeria and other places, who historically have been Muslims for many years, began to flock to South Africa. And they began to problematize who is black, African, and Muslim. They came not as converts. They came as proud 
Muslims uh, with a long history of belonging in Islam. And so they added another dimension to who is black African and Muslim in South Africa. So it was no longer the so-called converts, quote-unquote, who are black Muslims. <laughs> there they were these other Muslims from elsewhere in Africa. Okay, so I get it. So you have, so now you have, so, so black African and Muslim in South Africa means folks who are for, like sort of natives of South Africa, right? Some of them who yeah. might be converts or maybe they're the children of converts or grandchildren of converts at this point. And then... Mm-hmm migrants from other parts of Africa who are now settled in South Africa, right, who are also Muslim. And so this is kind of sort of making the terrain a little more complicated than, you know, just kind of thing. So I'm interested, and this is for anyone, whoever wants to take this first too. Um, So how does the wider non-Muslim Black community see or engage with, right, Black Muslims, you know, where you're at? (laughs) The truth? (laughs) I mean, I think that there's an illusion of Ummah, of one Ummah, but but in that rhetoric, there is erasure of Black Muslim history. And I think that often what gets lost is that kind of Indigenous way that Black and African or African communities have um, been Muslim and own Muslimness in the same ways that our brothers and sisters from South Asia or the Middle East have owned their Muslimness. I think very much in in Canada, in North America, but in Canada, which is where I'm based, it's it's always positioned as a convert story. It's always positioned as, you know, the nation of Islam to Sunni Islam, and then maybe to some some other kind of sect of Islam, and that's the trajectory, as opposed to kind of an indigenous way of knowing and being in a way that is intertwined and deeply rooted within the African or, or the Black context. So I think. In doing that, there is an erasure that leads to anti-Black racism in mosque spaces. And more tangibly, what that looks like is that we don't learn about Black Muslim histories in madrasas. We don't hear from scholarship that is Black um, often. I think that there's a bit of a renaissance happening. There's a shift happening. But for a very long time, it was rare to see any ma'am that was Black. And if you did, they have their own experiences of anti-Black racism from the, that they experience from the position of the pulpit. For young people... There's a story of marriage and the difficulty that they experience when they try to find a spouse and the racism that they face uh, when they try to join a family that is not Black. And so I think, yeah, I think most Black Muslims in Canada would say that their experience of Blackness in Muslim communities is one that is filled with uh, experiences of microaggressions and anti-Black racism that then gets tossed aside under the guise of, uh, well, you know, in Islam, we don't see race and we don't see color and to Allah, there, there is no there is no difference, um, and then therefore it absolves the people from the individual actions that they have because you know our texts say something, uh, although it's contradicted in behavior. When you, you said indigenous, when you use that term, what do you mean? I'm not speaking to like a native Canadian or Native American experience. I'm I'm speaking to the ways in which Islam is seen as inherently part of Arab or South Asian culture that's historical and deeply rooted. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow that that definition is not offered to Black communities, even though we know that there are many Black communities. The, there's stories even of the first Black person to come to Canada was a, a slave who freed himself and made the journey from Brazil to Canada and who was Muslim. But that's not a story that we get 
we get told, we hear about the first Arab community, the first Pakistani community, the ones that established their mosques. But we, but you know, if you actually look and see, and you see who was coming through the transatlantic slave trade, that many of those folks had a connection to Islam um, that gets untold or unheard. The consequence of that is that even as Black communities, as Black young people, we don't know that experience. We know the experience of immigration. We know the experience of fighting anti-Black racism, but we don't, like I said, I think that our story is often linked to trauma as opposed to also being linked to a history of of resistance, of scholarship, of, you know, a real kind of embedded presence within Muslim history or Islamic history. Uh, Also, I wanted to say to your question about how the Black Muslim so-called communities are engaging with the Black community in the mainstream, I would say that pre-Trump, it was a big challenge. There was a scholar called Dr. Ben Cannon. He used to write a lot of books talking about Arab slavery. So many of the our Pan-Africanist brothers, right, they used to be, when they used to hear about Islam or Muslims, they used to look down on Muslims with disdain. So it was hard for engagement. Not all the time, but I would say 70% of the time. But when President Trump came in, for some reason, it became easier to engage with various Black organizations, with Pan-Africanist leanings, or with other socialist leanings and so forth. It kind of made it easier. So we could say Trump done this, this, but he made it more positive, whereby Black Muslims were more engaging with Black mainstream organizations. Before Trump, I never really see this happening. Now with this so-called Black Lives Matter phase, we're seeing more engagement between Black Muslim communities within Black communities in various issues. But I also have to shout out um, Sheikh Abdullah Quick from Canada, who was living in South Africa. He is a very big part of empowering Black Muslims here in the UK. And what was lovely about him, I have to shout him out, because when I'm hearing the sister speak, and I'm seeing the brother from South Africa, I'm thinking, oh my God, this is reminding me of Sheikh Abdullah Quick. <laughs> What he was right. done, what was beautiful, is when he used to get booked by other communities to give a talk, he would try his utmost to outreach to black Muslims and say, look, I'm getting booked for this at this hotel. Can you connect something up at your house and bring all the black Muslims along? I've got something to show them. And no one ever forced him. This is something that he done himself. He probably done so many, on many occasions when he came to the UK, whether it was London, Birmingham, Manchester, whatever, he would either call me or call a brother called Rakeen, call a few other brothers, Islam alaikum, I'm getting booked. I'm free this time. Can you set something up? I've got some nice presentation about Islam in Africa, some other Islam African-centric knowledge and information. And he always made an effort. Unfortunately, we've got a lot of our brothers from North America, when they get booked by other communities, they don't want to know the black community here. So they just want to be lap dogs for other communities and try and hustle the money. So I just wanted to shout out Abdullah Sheikh Abdullah Hakim Quick. Mm. Your second point about um, Sheikh Abdullah Hakim Quick, does that mean that on the ground then, in terms of relationship between Black Muslims and non-Black Muslims, people, there's they're separate communities? They kind of do their own thing? Yes. Yeah, I would say that they, they are separate, but, but since Trump came on the scene, it became more unison. The, the, there was a bit of a hostility because, as we know, there was a big, um, how can I say, 
there's good and bad in all denominations and understandings of Islam. We all know that. Right. But we had some of our brothers who followed the Salafi creed from Brixton, which I can only I could describe it as the equivalent of Brooklyn in New York. And what happened is some of them, some of our brothers there, because they came from a kind of ghetto gangster mentality, they kind of mixed that with their Salafism. So because some of them were indulging in certain things, as I said, I'm far from perfect myself. I'm still learning. I'm trying to become a better Muslim, a better husband. So I'm not here to condemn. I'm just saying, but because some of our brothers from this place and certain other places in Birmingham were doing some certain things that, are, that have been seen as obscure in the black community, this brought a lot of apprehension from the mainstream black community when dealing with Muslims. So for example, I would contact, uh, in, in the UK, I would say the equivalent of Al Sharpton is a person called Lee Jasper in the UK. So when I outreached to him, actually one of his assistants contacted me a few years prior, but I was too busy. So I outreached him. When I met him, he assumed I was like that way because he's, he's come across certain extreme behavior. So, so he would never used to engage with black Muslims. But when since Trump came on the scene and he's met more liberal-minded, open-minded Muslims, and many of those guys who were kind of ghetto-fied with the respect and gangster-fied, a lot of them after a few years of praying, remembering Allah, reading Quran, they've now realized, oh, that's not Islam. And he's seen them change. He's now more easygoing and he now more outreach with the black Muslim communities. If that makes any sense. So I would say it's, it's, it's drastically improved. In the 90s and the early 2000s, it wasn't good. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, because, I mean, because, you know, coming from a U.S. like context, right, for me, like, when I think, like, when I, like, talk about Brooklyn, right? <laughs> I grew up in Brooklyn. The larger Black community typically held, a lot, held Black Muslims in a lot of esteem. Like, even if they weren't, like, going to be Muslim, right, because of the impact of movements like the Nation of Islam and different sort of all, all these different kind of movements, right, that we had in our communities, you know, people respected me. So like as a little girl, you know, I, I always tell this story. I was like 13 and um, I was in bedside. I was my friend. We had a Chinese restaurant, right? And we at the Chinese restaurant ordering some food and this older black, I, I don't know how much older, but he's older than us, right? This black guy comes in and he's in, getting to some kind of argument with the guy who owns the restaurant and he turns to us and he's kind of like, excuse me, sisters, I'm about to cuss this guy out, right? And we're like, we're like 13 or something like that, right? <laughs> you know? Like, and he was an adult, right? But he saw us in our head scars and he was like, okay, I have to be respectful of these, mm. right? So I'm about to do this thing. So that, so my experience generally has been of one where the broader Black community looks kindly at, at, at Black Muslims, um, particularly in places like the Northeast. I think in the South of the U.S. it's different. Right, but in places where there's this, like these urban centers where there have been a lot of Black Muslims, people tend to. It's always it was it was never an issue, right? It was like, oh, you're Muslim, and then some people are Rastas, and some people do this, and you know, we got some Jews, we got this, we got that. You know, it's kind of like in that kind of way. Yeah. Um, I want to turn to um, Tahir to ask you this question um, about, and then I want to come back to the non non Black Muslims too, and anti Blackness in the Muslim community. But in terms of like just the broader Black African, South African community, like how are Muslims seen or engaged with? In, interestingly, in South Africa, there's a, both an open respect for Black Muslims on the one hand, but also on the other, 
because of the the public face of Islam in South Africa has been associated with uh, so-called communities of the Asian diaspora. And therefore being black and being associated with Islam was regarded as a misnomer. Uh, uh, it was regarded as if one has taken a mistaken identity. Uh, there are even pejorative uh, negative terms uh, that are associated with being uh, black and Muslim in South Africa. Um, if you were in the Cape, for example, and you are seen to be black and Muslim, they would pejoratively say, Bazenza Muslims, meaning you're pretending to be uh, something that you are not. In other words, in other words, you have taken on a mistaken cultural religious uh, identity that is supposed to belong to those that are of Asian background. However, with the coming of Africans from elsewhere, it has become grudgingly, the black community has come to accept that one can be black, one can be black and, and Muslim without any sense of contradiction. But also over the years, local indigenous, uh, native, if you will, black African Muslims have been asserting and affirming their Muslimness without the patronage of the so-called Asian Muslim communities. The South African Black Muslim Conference of 2019, for example, that we referred to earlier, was a turning point and it received lots of publicity from the general South African public. The main television stations, for example, gave it a lot of coverage. And for the first time, at least at the public level, Islam was being seen through different lenses, through the visible, open presence of black Muslims taking ownership taking ownership uh, of Islam and articulating uh, what it means to be black, African, and Muslim in South Africa. That has made the community, general black African community, to look at black Muslims slightly differently. Yeah, you know, so, so I, you know, I first actually kind of encountered you, right, because I was invited to be part of this Critical Muslim Studies Decolonial School. And so this was in right before this. I call it the before times, right? This is right before COVID. <laughs> um, and I, um, I, I was able to come for the first time to South Africa. I was in Cape Town. And, you know, at the same time, I've been thinking a lot about indigeneity, which is why I asked that question to um, Jewelry. I've been thinking about indigeneity in terms of like, what is my relationship to that as descendant of enslaved Africans, right, in the United States. And so, of course, when you, when you come to South Africa, the indigenous people are Africans, right? <laughs> and the Muslims, right, or the Muslims who are not Africans, right, who are the Asian diaspora, as you call it, right, they are, they're, they're part of the South Africa and they've been there for a long time, but they're not indigenous to South Africa, right? Okay, so I'm thinking about that. And then I meet some Black African Muslims. And the stories they told about anti-blackness that they experienced. Because, you know, also the other thing is, like, as an American, as a U.S. American, you, know, you always have to be careful that you don't go someplace else and, like, map your, your reality on other people, right? So I'm, I'm paying, I'm, I'm, you know, trying to be very attentive mm -hmm. to that. 
But when I'm talking to these Black African Muslims in South Africa, I'm like, am I in Cape Town or am I in Brooklyn? Because the kinds of anti-Blackness they're experiencing is very familiar to me, right? It's not actually very different. So I wonder maybe you can speak a little bit to that, Tahir. Like, what is it, like, what does anti-Blackness look like in the Muslim community in South Africa? Well, I like to make a personal example and say that um, I used to see myself as a Muslim period. Um, but Muslims in South Africa have made me to see myself as different and to have pushed me to use Steve Biko's words and say, black man, you're on your own. With a modification, black Muslim, you're on your own. Mm. Um, they have reminded me that I was different through... <laughs> being conscripted and described as a convert at all times, even if you've been a Muslim for over a number of years, and but you constantly being confined to the zone space of being a convert, which then said to me, in as much as you want to be part of this community, you are not. Mm. <laughs> and, and so I began to wear embrace the, my black Muslim identity with a sense of pride, if you will, to the extent that I would even uh, refuse to enthusiastically <laughs> say assalamu alaikum when I see Muslims in the streets. Um, because when I, if I were to reach out to them, I might be embarrassed or disappointed because who are you? Where right. do you come from? And so... Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. No, it's fine. I'm going to invite It's heavy. It's, it's heavy, right? It's, so this, this thing of being forever a convert or like people not returning your salams. Like in the UK, are these are these similar things happening? Is it different? Like, you know, what's the deal? No, it's, it's, it, it does happen here. I never forget, Um, there was a sister um, who we were... We was working with a sister from New York. Her name is Misunderstood, a.k.a. Sister um, Tabasha. And we went somewhere. And every time she would sister, see a Muslim sister with hijab, um, went to an area, a predominantly Asian-Pakistani area. And she would say, Salam Alaikum, sister. Walk past her. She went to another sister. Salam Alaikum, sister. Walk past. And then it was funny is the third sister, the fourth, I think, or the fifth one, she walked up to the sister's face and said, Assalamu alaikum, sister. <laughs> and the sister said, Walaikum salam. And she ran, off, ran away. So that was very funny to see. But yeah, it, it happens here. It happens here. Yes, and yes, you're, you're, you're continually referred to as a revert convert. And what's funny is sometimes when you're trying to tell someone that someone's black, uh, the way they ref, um, people refer to black Muslim, oh, the revert brother. I said, no, 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 he's a born Muslim. Hmm. <laughs> But that shows the serious ignorance of people's not understanding that Islam has been in various countries over the years. But, after, but I'm just being real. A lot of my peers disagree with me because I do meet a lot of black brothers who've been Muslims for 20, 30 years, and they refer to themselves as convert and reverts. Hmm. So sometimes when I'm talking to someone to make them understand, I say convert, revert, because you have some of our brothers they're black Muslims, 
but they feel by calling themselves black Muslims, I'm not sure if this is in South Africa or Canada, they're making a racial statement that can be seen as them being a nationalist. So they prefer to call themselves a revert convert because that's more palatable with other Muslim communities. So sometimes even when I'm trying to promote something, my wife doesn't like me using, my wife hates the word. My wife is of, she's a born Muslim of Nigerian heritage. So she hates the word because she's a born Muslim and people call her, when someone calls her a revert, oh my gosh, I have to run away. I can't be near. She, she gets uh, militant. So <laughs> the sad reality is sometimes when, when you're engaging with people and because some people of our people have been brainwashed, sometimes they, they prefer, some of our people prefer to be called reverts and converts even though their parents are converts and reverts, even though, and they're born Muslims, even though they've been a convert or revert for 20, 30 years, they prefer, it's, it's very strange. Mm. And yes, you do get play, go places where people don't salam you. It's a reality. Um, but, because people, because as we know, within every community, you have some people who've embraced Islam for the wrong reasons. So because of some of those actions by certain people, some communities, I'll never forget, there was a sister we was working with. I try not to go on too long. She, we was working with her because she set up a school. So she wanted us to do some projects with her. So she was trying to introduce us to different people. And then we went away and my friend overheard her talking to another person of Bengali heritage. I said, yes, they're, they're Muslims and they're black. And I said, look, Bilal and Malcolm X were black. And then the Bengali said, said, said to her, yeah, that was Bilal. <laughs> that was Bilal. That was Malcolm X. They're no, <laughs> like insinuating that only Bilal is the only good Muslim. And because they're black Muslims, you better be careful. So these are realities that we, we put up with. But I'm, I'm honored that the brothers that I hang with are very um, black conscious, black Muslim brothers who are very positive. So they warn me. When I first embraced Islam, they always told me, don't worry about the racism you're going to get from the Asians and Arabs. That's how they are. Let them do them and we do we. We do us. So because I had those people around me, I think that kind of helped me not to take those people too seriously. I think, I think Jillary and, and Tahir want to jump in. So go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say that, you know, that I think that experience of um, perpetual convert is one that is also seen here in Canada. And to me, I just, you know, I draw parallels to the experience of being the perpetual immigrant. You could be here for generations, but will also always be seen as part of an immigrant community and an other community. Um, and the same thing, you know, my, my mother converted to Islam. I was four. Um, and so it's all that I've known. I've grown up, grown up in the Muslim community, but still, I, you know, feel the need to or get labeled as um, the convert Muslim. Although I would say, you know, I was practically born Muslim. And I think that's the experiences of many of my mom's friends whose children were born Muslim but are still seen as converts. So I think that, that to me, it always astonishes me how our community, even though we experience discrimination, even though we experience othering as being quote unquote immigrant communities to Canada, we replicate those similar systems within, within the mosque spaces. I would say though, you know, in, at least in Toronto where I live, we're a very diverse community and a very diverse community of Muslims, a very established community of Muslims. So the anti-Black racism isn't as overt. It happens in the way you get disproportionately corrected in prayer or in the ways in which we don't, you know, see our history reflected. Shay Quick, who is my neighbor and happens to be my sister's father-in-law, is very instrumental 
to to maintaining the Black Muslim history and that knowledge and, and that transfer of knowledge here. But it's only des- delegated to Black communities to do. It's not something that we you hear from leadership of other communities uh, or that they... I don't even know if they they really know the history of of Black Muslims or Black Islamic history, if, if you want to call it that. So yeah, I think you know the the way the ways in which anti-Black racism show up is really subtle. It's very present. If you're Black, you understand that it exists, but it's very subtle here. I think it's only in Panama where I've interacted with Muslims from South Asia, from from the Middle East, that you'll greet them in hijab. And they won't greet you back. I don't think that I've ever experienced that here in Canada. It, it's a very kind of subtle form of anti-black racism that that we experience. And to to Brother Ismail's point around our current political moment, I think even here, the current political moment, whether we want to um, you know, give credit to Donald Trump or whether it's BLM or a combination of every of kind of the perfect storm, it has given license for Black communities to speak about their experiences, their experiences in broader society, their experiences within the Muslim community. It has softened, I think, the broader Muslim community to stop and listen and create spaces for the conversations. I still think we're very early on in, in the work, but at the very least, people are acknowledging, you know, with things like, what's, what's it like to be Black in the MSA? What's it like to be Black um, a black scholar. What's it like to, you know, be black, a black Muslim wanting to marry into a non-black Muslim family? Those conversations are allowed to happen in a way that they have never been allowed to happen before. Yeah, I think Jillary has preempted my response because I, I was uh, beginning to worry that the conversation, as it were, was more skewed to being a conversation where we speak as if we are victims without any sense of agency to change our situation. And I was wondering at what point do we also begin, without, of course, sanitizing the conversation, at what point do we also begin to celebrate mm. being Black, African, and Muslim mm-hmm. um, and talk about instances and moments um, of celebration. Um, and I think the instances where Guillory has referred to, for example, where conversations that are censored within the so-called historical Muslim communities, there's more openness within Black Muslim communities where subjects that might be taboo elsewhere are not taboo. And therefore, there's a sense in which Black African Muslims, at least in our context, are redefining what being Muslim is in their own terms, so to speak. And for me, cause for for celebration. Um, But also, Islam in the Black African Muslim community, Suad will relate to this, especially through her work, Muslim Cool. (laughs) If I were to borrow from Suad and say, Muslim Cool tries within Black African Muslim spaces without any fear of censorship, for me, that is very much um, liberating. Yes. Suad also has touched on something very, very Deep, 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 deep. When I had an opportunity to peep 
on Sapelo Square and see what is happening. You know, when she introduced me and said, just have a look. One of the things that captured me, and thank you for this to add, was the call to pray for the ancestors. When she, I think Suad can relate this better, when she referred to an existential moment inside a mosque, should I stay, remain in the mosque, or should I go outside and join the march? Because the mosque experience, its spirituality, uh, was not resonating with me. And, and that call um, to own our, to borrow your words, spiritual agency, is very, very much um, liberating. Um, and so there are moments of celebration. <laughs> We're not constant victims uh, at the mercy and seeking affirmation uh, from someone else. Uh, Black African Muslims in different contexts have taken ownership of their spirituality and sense of uh, being Muslim. And lastly, <laughs> let me indulge a little bit. Earlier on, there was reference to the Nation of Islam. Uh, some years back, uh, Imam Siraj Wahaj, uh, I'm sure you all know him, uh, visited South Africa. And he was rather embraced very coldly initially by the black Muslim community uh, because he was not part of the nation of Islam. And yet Siraj did not make any ref Imam Siraj did not make any references to the nation of Islam. Local black Muslim community identified more with the nation of Islam because the nation of Islam was rearticulating Islam in their own terms. Mm. Uh, we're not talking about whether Akida is right or wrong. Uh, that's a different conversation altogether. But at least uh, they were taking ownership of Islam. Anyway, to cut a long story, one brother got very furious with Imam Siraj and um, he wanted to know his position on Minister Louis Farrakhan. Um, and Imam Siraj through his pocketbook and say, this is Minister Farrakhan's number. I call him all the time. <laughs> and I press on him to correct his Akida. And Imam Siraj said, Farrakhan would always say to me, Siraj, you don't understand. <laughs> Siraj, you don't understand. Now I say, as Tahir, I understand why Minister Farrakhan said to Imam Siraj, Siraj, you don't understand. <laughs> That's great. Um, thank you so much, Tahir, for that, that important point around celebration and for the article. So the article, just for those who don't know, it's an article that I wrote for Sapelo Square um, where I talk about um, when the African burial grounds were discovered in Lower Manhattan. I was working in Lower Manhattan at the time and there was a procession right, to celebrate, so to honor, you know, commemorate the burial grounds and the, and the enslaved Africans who had been deceased. And I knew there were Muslims that were part of the people, you know, um, that were that buried in that burial ground. And I was working in Lower Manhattan and I went to Juma at this mesh in Lower Manhattan. And it was at the same time that this burial thing was happening. And I was, you know, I knew it wasn't going to happen, but a small part of me anticipated that there might be some recognition you know, in the chutbah or in the, you know, the, the you know, the jaw you do right before you make the suraka. And of course, nothing happened. I just said something. I was in, because it was, a, it was like a woman's area. So I was in a woman's area and I was like, don't forget the ancestors. 
I just said something. And after that point later, I decided to write this prayer for our enslaved ancestors. And actually, Jewelry helped me. To have it in my house. Yes, yes. Framed. (laughs) She helped me with my, the the Spanish translation. Um, I talked to my father. I was talking to Jewelry. She helped me to make sure the Spanish was right. And then last year, um, my friend Mona Mana, she helped me do an Arabic translation of of the prayer as well. It's so beautiful, Swad, and it has actually opened up like I, when you asked me to translate, I naturally went to my mom to help me translate. And she was like, I've never thought to pray like this. I've never oh. thought to, it just really opened up a beautiful, beautiful intergenerational conversation with myself and my, and my mom about how we practice, how we pray, how we think about those who came before us, how we think about our histories in prayer. Like, yeah. So it's, Mashallah, thank you for that. It's, <laughs> no. really, it's in my house. It's a point of conversation. And because we, ha- we have it in Spanish, so that also messes with people's minds about, you know, saying Allah in a Spanish sentence and all of that. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> so, but I wanted to invite you, Jewelry, to add yeah. on, because I know you wanted to add to what Tahir was talking about, this celebration part. I know you want to bring some. Yeah, I, have, I mean, I have so many thoughts, because I, as I was mentioning um, before offline, that I've been really kind of struggling and challenged with this idea that the ways in which we learn about our, about our identities are first and foremost from a place of trauma and, you know, not to whitewash or sanitize um, the history, which I think is important. I, I also feel as though it's taught as if it's our history when it's not, it's the history of our colonizers. Um, and, you know, I have a, I have two young children and one is in grade one. And here in Canada, we're having like a national reckoning around our relationship, the state's relationship with Indigenous communities and individuals are having a reckoning um, around the relationship as settlers to Indigenous communities. And my husband is half Black. On his mother's side, he's half Black, half Indigenous from the Mi'kmaq tribe, from the East Coast of Canada. So my daughter knows this. She knows that she's part Indigenous. She look at her, she looks part Indigenous. And the, the day of national... Reconciliation, the National Day for Truth Reconciliation, and of, of remembrance around these mass graves that have been found at residential schools of Indigenous children in Canada, across Canada. And the last residential school in Canada closed in 1996. So it's quite present history. My daughter comes home after having learned about this in school, crying, like really upset, thinking that they're going to take her away because she's Indigenous. And in that moment, I thought, wow, like, you know, it's really great that the schools are engaging in this conversation in a way that they never did when I was young. We never talked about indigeneity or indigenous communities in Canada at all when I was in public school. So it's great that they're learning this on one hand. But on the other hand, I think, what damage do you do to young racialized children, young black and indigenous children, when the first interaction or interruption you have as a system is one that only speaks about their trauma story? And so I'm glad that we're moving into a conversation about celebration because I think for many communities, Black Muslim communities, in redefining or reimagining what Muslimness looks like, it is about a celebration. For me, I interpret Black Muslimness as vibrant, as one that loves music, that loves the one that loves gathering, one that interprets Islam in a way, you know, growing up in a mostly South South Asian Muslim community, I felt that Islam was always taught from a place of fear. Mm. But, you know, through my reconnection to my Africanness, to my Blackness, it's, it's to me, Islam is coming from a place of love and celebration. You see the images from West Africa where they're bringing in Ramadan with drums and dancing on the streets, something that felt for a very long time so 
in contradiction with one another. Mm. Um, so I think that that, you know, that is to, for me how, how we celebrate this identity. Mm. Mm. And I've seen how our celebration and our reclamation of our spirituality and relationship with Allah from our perspective has given license to those who are Muslim that are not black to also reimagine what mm-hmm. mosque spaces look like, what their, mm-hmm. what their Islam looks like, how to be Muslim in the West, which I think a lot of young people who are born here being raised as Muslims or growing up to embrace, re-embrace Islam after having left it, even after being born into a Muslim family, often look to black communities to understand how do, how do I have these two kind of identities together? Uh, how do I give myself license to explore Muslimness, not from necessarily a, a one cultural perspective? All right. So on the celebration tip then, what are some of your favorite things about being Black and Muslim experience in Canada? Like, so for example, for me, like one of, one of the things that I always, you know, I like, I'm like bean pie, right? Like we, like I'm like, I'm like, oh, I'm like, I'm like, there's, I'm like, there's actually only one Muslim food on the planet, and that's the bean pie, all right? <laughs> I'm like, because, you know, Arabs or Daisies, or they eat kebabs, you know, they you know, grill meat, everybody eats grilled meat, right? But the bean pie emerges from a purely Muslim experience, right? Yeah, so I'm like, I love the bean pie. So what's some of your favorite things about you know, being Black and Muslim in Canada? It's, I mean, again, I think it's a difficult question to ask because of my complicated relationship with Blackness and the way in which it shows up in Canadian context. But I also think, you know, for me, I was surrounded by Black Muslim women growing up and their influence on my life, their influence and how they mothered each other's children, how they grew up together and learned together and had a very present, they had a big presence in our Muslim spaces, um, which I, it it kind of felt in contrast to some of the more traditional Muslim spaces. So I think that might be one of my favorite things, the way in which, you know, Black women had take up space um, in Muslim spaces. Cool. Ismail, what's some of your favorite things? Um, I would say, it might sound a bit selfish, but um, myself, Brother Rakeen, Nas, Sister Munera, Sister Amina, Rakeen's wife, and a few others, once a year, pre-COVID, for the past six, seven years, we've been organizing Black Muslim Awards, the UK Black Muslim Awards. So it's a thing, it's an event that we organize where we celebrate Black Muslims in business, IT, activism, um, human relief, and this is where we, and our academics, our authors, and this is where we celebrate our own from our community. And what's what we always try to do is we bring people from different sects, denominations, understanding. When we first tried to do it, we thought, you know what, this might turn into a bit of a arguing fest. But alhamdulillah, um, when everyone came together, it's a beautiful thing. Because I know you know Sister Manira well. She's attended and it's one of the not- nicest things I could say. I know it sounds selfish because something that we organize, but when you're seeing... African, Afro-Caribbean Muslims, Somali, Sudanese, everyone, Afro-Caribbeans, South Africans, some Canadians, diasporans who are here studying when they attend. And it's just something everyone's just celebrating. And it's just lovely. And what's nice, you see people from other communities. We, we don't shut anyone out. You see some people from the Asian community who come in the Arab community. Sometimes they come in to look what we're doing. But what's nice is they, they feel at home and they don't try to take over. They just chill out. So I said, that's, one, that's, that's the first thing I would say. 
The second thing I would say about being a black Muslim in the UK is Eid festivals. Our Eid festivals. There's a wonderful sisters from Leicester and they organize a blackout Eid. I know they were inspired by some of our brothers and sisters in America. So they organize something called a blackout Eid in Leicester. So, and it's just like a, a hangout spot. People just chill out. We just do Eid our way. Spoken word poetry, play some hip hop, of course, positive hip hop, play some reggae, that's positive, and just hang out on Eid with the family. So yeah, I would say those two things. <laughs> Thank you. And Tahir, what are some things you celebrate about the Black African Muslim experience in South Africa? Well, I celebrate what um, the African novelist Quay Arma has said. I want to rephrase Quay Arma. I'm sure you're all familiar with some of his works. He has written a novel where he bemoans the African condition and says that um, when he looks at the African condition, post-colonial Africa, independent African states, and the conditions therein, he has coined this phrase that has resonated for many of us that says the beautiful ones are not yet born. Mm. With the South African Black Muslim Conference of 2019, Mm -hmm. it showed us that the beautiful ones are being born. Mm. That conference expose the rich talent that exists within what was perceived thought to be a marginal community. It exposed the richness that is there in terms of art, professionals, from born Black South African Muslims, period. And so for me, that was a moment of celebration. Mm. And the hope is that that initiative can be nurtured. Unfortunately, COVID moment <laughs> disrupted the momentum, <laughs> but hopefully we can build on that momentum and begin to nurture Black African Muslim institutions. Uh, we have started in a small way, but the challenge is uh, to soldier on. Mm-hmm. And I'm very delighted uh, with this conversation. It might appear small, and I want to re-echo Guillory's words, it demonstrates that in many ways, our shared experience is similar. Mm. Uh, And so we need to build on these connections that we're making and celebrate (laughs) what it means to be Black African Muslim in the world. Yes, yes. So, Ismail, kind of second to last question I want to ask is about the future. I think with the points that everyone's made about our past and trauma, but then celebration, but looking forward, like forecasting into the future, right? What does the future look like for Black Muslims, whether in the UK or in the world? Like, what do you think the future holds for us? I could say, hopefully, the future in the UK, from a UK perspective, that we could build more Black Muslim business networks of people of different denominations understanding, but building a network that can benefit our children and our inner economy. What I hope to see, we do have it to a little extent, but I hope it can be improved, is where our scholars of African, Afro-Caribbean heritage can find ways to come together 
at least once a year because we've got quite a few scholars of African, Afro-Caribbean heritage here in the UK of different denominations. I'm hoping that they could find ways of working together to benefit us as a community as a whole, even though we're not one community, we're communities. And on a worldwide level, I'm hoping that Black Muslims from the UK can connect more with our African-American and African-Canadian and African brothers on the continent more and find a way of working together to benefit our individual communities and benefit us as a whole, where we can build our own networks, whether in scholarship, business and economics, spiritual understanding and publishing and so forth. Because I think for too long, I'm not sure about, I can't see. Yeah, I think it's in America from when I went there, my short stays in America. But I know in the UK, for too long, Black Muslim communities have been relying on other communities to do things for them. But with wonderful people like Habib Akande, may Allah bless him, Sheikh Ibrahim Osei, Sheikh Bilal, Sheikh Babika Ahmed, and a few others, Black Muslim communities here in the UK are maturing more and taking ownership to bring things forward. Hillary, what does the future look like? I think similarly to Brother Ismail, I hope that we have a more global response or global understanding of experiences um, and the ways in which Black communities um, exist across the world. And even sitting in this conversation, it's very evident that many of the struggles are similar, but also that many of the ways that communities are reclaiming um, identity is um, is similar. So I think, you know, to have my children have a global perspective and have a connection to ancestry, to, to Africa, to the continent in a, in a way that feels a little bit more authentic would be great. I would also enjoy that our leadership and our scholarship help us acquire the kind of knowledge and history that I think has been lost about our communities, you know, to, to know more than just the story of Bilal in terms of a story of how Black culture or Africanness has influenced or been influenced by, by Islam would be, I think, a really kind of important turning point in our growth as a community. And I don't know, I, you know, I just, I would like for, for myself and uh, and my children, I think, to begin to sit more comfortably in an expression of Islam that doesn't mirror expressions of Islam that are from other communities. I think particularly here in, in from a Canadian experience, it is an immigrant experience and often that comes with a holding on to a cultural identity, whether it's South Asian or Arab, and an interpretation of Islam that then gets performed as if it is the only way. And, that, you know, as I had said in, in uh, earlier, you know, to, to see through the magic of social media, the ways in which African Muslim communities celebrate the coming of, of Ramadan with music and dancing on the streets. And that's not seen as taboo or haram. Although in some, in, you know, in, I was taught by the South Asian Muslims that I learned Islam from that dancing and music was haram. Absolutely. It doesn't happen. Um, but what I, you know, I think in my adulthood learned to realize is that they're only talking about black bodies, not talking about their own necessarily because Bollywood, right. Bollywood is fine. Right. Um, so <laughs> I think, you know, just, I would like to first and foremost for myself, but then for my children have a, a comfort level and a confidence in the ways in which we practice Islam culturally 
and the ways in which our our cultural identity intertwines and interprets Islamic text and, and law. Mm, thank you. And Tahir, what does you think the future holds? I think the future is bright. It's bright in the sense that Black African Muslims are bringing on another layer, another texture of what it means to be Muslim in the world. Mm -hmm. In some ways, they are cleaning up (laughs) the, let me say it, (laughs) the baggage that was settled with from the so-called historical Muslim uh, communities uh, that have given Islam a very negative, bad image. And so on a triumphant note, not Trumpist note, <laughs> triumphant note, triumphant note. Bada al Islamu gariban fasaya udu gariban kama bada u patuba lil guraba. I think Suad can translate better than I can. No, I think I think you should translate. You should please translate that for our audience. Islam began as a strange phenomenon. There's an old saying. Uh, Islam began as a strange phenomenon, uh, and when it returns, it will return as something strange again. Mm. And that strangeness of Islam is located in Black Muslim expressions of Islam. <laughs> nice. Nice. Because they appear to be strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. They do not fit with the so-called normative conventional understanding, and yet they are as authentic as anything that is Islam and Muslim. Right. Thank you so much. This has been such a fantastic conversation. And my very last question for each of you is a question we ask all of our guests, right? It's like, what is your Black Muslim theme song? Okay. So I'm going to let whoever go, wants to go, go first. Okay, I'll, I'll make it quick and swift. Mine's is Muhammad Walks by Lupe Fiasco. But I do want to say one little thing more, inspired by what the Sheikh said. When I went, alhamdulillah, with a group of brothers that, alhamdulillah, who I was with when I first embraced Islam, we went to Sudan. And a few years later, we went to Nigeria, northern Nigeria. And while being in those two countries, it... And I personally believe that all black Muslims in the diaspora, i.e. America, Canada, the UK, Europe, I think it should be made compulsory that we go to African Muslim communities for us to get a sense of empowerment, a sense of identity. And it's good for us to see communities of African Muslims in the, in, the, in the motherland. I think it's very important because it's done a lot for me and a lot for the brothers that I've traveled with. And met, even now, we still talk about it. I just wanted to mention it on this podcast. I think it's very important for African people in the diaspora to visit and to stay, even if for a week, in African Muslim communities. Thank you for that. So, And, and Muhammad Walks, Lupe Fiasco is your Black Muslim theme song. Okay. Um, Tahir, you were going to say, your, what's your Black Muslim theme song? There's quite a few, but um, there's one by Abdullah Ibrahim. And I'm sure you're familiar with him. He's a South African-born but world-acclaimed pianist. Uh, he has a track that is called Zikr. And I play that in Ramadan. <laughs> and sing and dance to his tunes. Thicker, 
by Abdullah Ibrahim. Nice. Thank you. Mikha by Abdullah Ibrahim. And Jillery, what is your Black Muslim theme song? Uh, interesting question because I'm like not not a hip hop head, not re- like I'm a salsera at heart. But um, uh, so that I, I mean, <laughs> that could be like if I was to pick, if I was so, to pick okay, a yeah, song, well, I'll just say if I was to pick a song and that was and that was by genre, my song would totally be El Todo Poderoso um, by Hector Lavo. That would be my song. Yeah, there's also a Guanile, which is originally from um, Willy Colon, which is really great and brings in kind of like that uh, African mysticism pieces, which I might be controversial for some. But in, in English, I think it, she's a good friend of mine, an artist from Toronto. Her name is Tamash Garad, and she is Hariri Ethiopian. And she has a song called Black Gold. And it's just a really beautiful celebratory song that she released last year. So check her out. Black gold. All right, so we got Muhammad Walks, Victor, and Black Gold. I mean, I don't know if we can do better. <laughs> I don't know if that can be better. Oh, that sounds me. like you got to make a song based on that. And I'm going to be noted. I want to add one more song. All right. As well. It's a song called Ramadan by Ahmed Iklas. I'm going to pick up my UK people. So Ahmed Iklas, he's a dub poet, reggae poet, and he's got a song called Ramadan. That one, when my family hears that, when my kids hear that, we go, we go crazy. All right. Okay. So, all right. Muhammad Walks, Vicar, Ramadan, and Black Gold. All right. If that's not a great way to end this session, I don't know what is. You got to link them onto the podcast. Yes, I will. For sure. Uh, Thank you all. Thank you, Tahir. Thank you, Jewelry. Thank you, Ismail, for joining me, joining us on The Square to talk about being Black and Muslim in the world. 